Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. You have no choice. We have no choice. Three generations of the Kerr family have devoted themselves to amity and understanding between people of different nations, especially the United States and the Mideast. Anne Kerr Adams and her first husband, Malcolm, his parents, who taught at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, and Anne and Malcolm Kerr's four children, whose careers stretch across agricultural economics, English politics and Brexit, national security, and professional basketball. In 1982, Malcolm Kerr left his 20-year academic career at UCLA to become president of the American University in Beirut, the city where he was born. He was assassinated there in 1984, evidently by Iranian-backed extremists of the emerging Hezbollah group. Ann Kerr Adams now heads UCLA's Fulbright Scholar Enrichment Program. Her family was recently awarded a settlement in its lawsuit against Iran over Malcolm Kerr's assassination and put it to use for a UCLA fellowship for students from the Mideast. Now that the Trump administration's travel ban has been upheld, what becomes of international exchange and enrichment programs for students from the five majority Muslim countries on the banned list and of the Kerr family's hundred years long work and hopes? Tell me what this program of yours is about. Well, I have two main programs at UCLA. One is running the Fulbright Scholar Enrichment Program, which brings visiting Fulbright scholars into our local cultural scenes. The purpose also is to bring them together so they meet each other and form international friendships, along with coordinating the Fulbright Scholar Enrichment Program to bring visiting scholars into the community. I teach two courses using our Fulbright scholars as speakers. And that class is called Perceptions of the U.S. Abroad, Discussions with Visiting Fulbright Scholars. This is a wonderful opportunity for our UCLA freshmen and sophomores to have a small seminar-type experience and learn from these international Fulbright scholars from around the world. We started these courses after September 11th to bring a different kind of subject matter into the curriculum to serve the needs of post-September 11th young people. So these students coming in were one or two years old when September 11th happened, and they've grown up on the U.S. engaging in preemptive war, whereas before September 11th, students more or less followed the narrative of the U.S. as the outstanding democracy in the world, and everyone would want to be like us, and we could take democracy to the rest of the world. So it's an about change for these contemporary students. In the early years after we started this, we had a Fulbright scholar from Japan, and she told us how surprised Japanese people were when they heard Americans comparing September 11th to Pearl Harbor when Japanese people compared it to dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That was kind of a real awakening. Seeing ourselves as others see us or seeing others in the way they see themselves is what we're after. The students are particularly fascinated with Fulbright scholars from post-communist countries. 
they're so curious about what communism was like, what some of these people grew up, some of the older scholars, because we have professors and researchers, not just graduate students. What some of these people who grew up when their countries were under communism and they had to learn Russian as a second language and they had to be very careful about what they said and they do remember the austerity of those days. So that's been something that I hadn't expected. You had, from a young age, a curiosity about other countries and it became a curiosity and a lifelong interest and abiding commitment to the Middle East. How did that happen? That's quite a romantic story. I set off as a junior abroad student from New York on a 17-day journey uh, across the end of the Mediterranean to Beirut, Lebanon. Our only stop was in Casablanca, where we spent a day on the mainland. And I was fascinated with the mixture of French and Arabic. And then I heard the call to prayer. And it was so mysterious and haunting. And I guess that that romanticism took hold then and has stayed with me ever since. A fascination with the area and its history and why we have what we see there today. It could have been so different. That must make it all the more poignant for you to think about the might-have-beens in the Middle East. It's just almost unbearable to think about these people from all parts of the world now. The Rohingya and the Africans from Central Africa, where the drought is, and the Syrians and the Yemenis. And it's unbearable, really, to think about how this is happening and what we can do about it. The mood of the world is to keep the immigrants out. You asked me why my attraction to the Arab world. I married. <laughs> I met in Beirut. We took the same Ottoman history class. My future husband and we were sort of we had a natural connection by meeting there. And I also lived with four Arab women in the dorm for a whole academic year, which was wonderful. And I've kept up these friendships all these years. I was in the Middle East for a long period of time when my husband was president of the American University of Beirut and. Tragically, he was a victim of the civil war that was raging then. However, we thought that the war might come to a close or at least ease off seven years later when he was asked to be president. And we wanted to believe that it would be better. And of course, it wasn't. He was assassinated in 1984 uh, near his office on the campus. But after that time, my youngest son and I and my oldest son went to Cairo so we had a little family unit there, and I stayed for five years. I loved it. Cairo is a wonderful place, a wonderful city. I hope it can come back, too. There's a phrase, Yankee, go home, but take me with you. Have you heard that before? Well, there's still an element of that. The United States is still a place where people think they can work hard and make their way in the world. But indeed, there's less and less of that spirit, I think, particularly under this administration, it's just the difficulty in going through the airport here. Once they arrive, they're detained and for hours and hours being questioned. I'm talking now about friends of mine from the university, Lebanese, who might want to come here for a conference. But we noticed at the Middle East Studies Association meeting in Washington in March, there seemed to be fewer people than usual. A lot of people from the Middle East just didn't want to come. And we had an applicant for the her family fellowship that I started recently, and um, one of them didn't want to come because of the current situation. So yes, there's certainly been a change. 
And I, I hope it's not permanent. But I think we need to separate the people from the actions of their government. And I find that's always true, almost always true as far as I know. In the classes, in the seminars that you have at UCLA, what kind of myths and misconceptions do you encounter on both sides about Americans and about the rest of the world? Oh, good. I like that question. (laughs) Aside from the fact that the scholars want to be polite and they're a little hesitant to make critical comments, they do say that their opinions have changed to some extent when they come here and see us, especially if they can be with families, because they come with the impression that we we don't have any family life, that we don't go to church on Sundays. And they also find that we're not all rich. They're always shocked at the homelessness. From movies, of course, they get the impression that Americans are rich. The Fulbright scholars often have the impression that Americans are very friendly and make very easy friendships, but they don't go as deep as they might in other places. Except for one German scholar who said, I love the United States because we can make small talk. You all make small talk. (laughs) He said, in Germany, we don't make small talk. (laughs) So it's fun when that kind of thing happens, these surprise comments like that. At a Fulbright dinner, one of our opening dinners in San Diego, a young man from Africa was here. I asked him how he was doing in this country. He had just arrived three months earlier, and he said, well, I haven't seen a gun yet, as if everyone in America was going to pull out a gun the minute he saw them. This isn't as amusing now, because it does seem like everyone has a gun, but at the time, this was maybe eight years ago, it seemed he'd been watching too many Wild West movies. And, of course, the converse, people think that everyone in the rest of the world is carrying a bomb. Right. And that every Muslim is evil. And it's so sad, so, so sad. You spoke about your seminar having its genesis after 9-11. How have you seen the regard for or about the United States change in those 15, 16 years, and now especially with the new administration? This is an important point, especially, well, in so many countries, they have their own Trumps. And it was reassuring. (laughs) I mean, strange as this sounds, at the beginning of the Trump administration, I remember in the classes when Fulbright scholars told us that they have their own situation with populist candidates running for elections and the threat of uh, much more authoritarian government. This was reassuring to us, even to me. We're not the only ones in this situation, in our current situation. I think the students know that. And we purposely don't talk about that. We want to concentrate more on the cultural differences between us that make up the national character. It's an interesting dynamic because people from abroad think they know a lot about America and American culture because they watch American movies and television. And American students, perhaps because popular culture doesn't flow the other way, know virtually nothing about these other countries. So on one side, you're dispelling misconceptions, and on the other, you're kind of filling a void. Well, that's exactly the goal, and it's really gratifying to do this. And you kind of see the scales fall off their eyes. The fact that uh, today's Supreme Court ruling uh, just coming out, a tremendous success, a tremendous victory for the American people and for our Constitution. This is a great victory for our Constitution. 
We have to be tough and we have to be safe and we have to be secure. At a minimum, we have to make sure that we vet people coming into the country. We know who's coming in. We know where they're coming from. What effect do you think this travel ban that has now been endorsed by the Supreme Court is going to have on your programs, on perhaps many of the programs in colleges and universities? It's unbelievable. (laughs) It's so damaging. Your family took settlement money from your lawsuit against Iran for your husband's murder and put it toward a fellowship for students from the Mideast. And it was something that was a long time in coming because there was a financial settlement after a trial for state-sponsored terrorism that many of the victims of Iran-sponsored terrorism had against the Iranian government. And many, many years later, only recently, actually some money came through, which we didn't anticipate. There was no idea that that would happen. And it was kind of something that was going to be hard to deal with emotionally for me. And so I could come to terms with it by thinking of turning this, bringing this full circle and creating a scholarship for the greater Middle East. We do have a young woman coming in September, and she will be getting a full ride for a PhD in the Middle East Studies Center, but in the field of sociology. And she's working on refugees. And that's just exactly what we want. The scholarship says it has to be in the liberal arts, humanities, but not medicine or engineering, where they have more money than the liberal arts. She's actually from Lebanon. And she actually went to the American University of Beirut. I think some people who might have wanted to come on the scholarship did not, I heard, because of the present administration. Your children have taken up international interests, too, in various ways. My son John and his wife Kim teach at Michigan State University. They're agricultural economists. Each of my children received a separate payout, and they have turned theirs into a scholarship for a student in their Department of Sustainability, Resource Sustainability. And it's also meant to perpetuate the kinds of work that a couple of generations of our family have done in the Middle East. I encourage anyone to learn about the rest of the world in whatever way is productive. And I'm certainly glad to be in a field and have my children in fields where they can. And if anyone can now, it's Steve through basketball. I'm so proud of him, the way he's speaking out on social issues. Globalization of sports has really been huge, and now he's he's become internationally known and speaks out on social justice issues, and I'm very proud that he can use his role as a coach of a championship team to do that kind of thing. And then my other children are doing it in different ways. My daughter is a county councillor in Cambridgeshire in England. She is. She was actually she's a member of the Lib Democrats and fighting very hard against Brexit for a more open world. If you could send a tweet to America, we're anxious, we're unnerved, we're suspicious, we're fearful, what would you say to your fellow Americans? I'd say there's so much to learn about the world and to try to create opportunities to do that. Let's travel as much as we can. Let's learn what the rest of the world is like and see ourselves as others see us and fill our minds with a broader picture and broader horizon. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. 
Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Dave Wine and Mike Heflin and edited by Heflin. The news clips are from CNN and The Washington Post. The call to prayer is from a YouTube video from Australia. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. <laughs>